I do think that times are hard, easy to get gloomy, but there's never been more digital opportunity. There's never been a more activist and exciting younger generation. There's never been a time when businesses are more feeling the heat and wanting to go forward in radical ways. So I would say this is a moment for focusing with extra intensity rather than saying, oh, it's another difficult and especially difficult year. The most optimistic and energetic moods will create the best results. Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show. I hope this finds you well and healthy and that you had a nice end to your summer. We have a great lineup of What Donors Want guests for the autumn, and I'm so excited to kick this off with the legendary Richard Curtis. He is, of course, the BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning film writer and director responsible for classics such as Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones' Diary, Mr. Bean, Love Actually, and most recently Danny Boyle's Yesterday. But films are just one part of his life. In the other half, Richard is also the co-founder and vice chair of Comic Relief, which he started after visiting Ethiopia during the 1985 famine. He has co-produced the Red Nose Day live night of TV for the BBC since 1988, and the charity has now made over £1 billion for projects in Africa and the UK during that time. In 2015, he also helped to bring the massively successful Red Nose Day to the US with NBC. Among many other things, Richard is also currently leading Project Everyone, a team working to make the UN's Sustainable Development Goals as famous and therefore as effective as possible in their drive towards impact. And he recently launched an ethical pension investment campaign in the UK called Make My Money Matter. I don't know how he does it all with only 24 hours in a day, but he's certainly an incredibly influential leader in the space with a tremendous impact, and we were so thrilled to speak with him. I must say, though, I was actually on leave during this interview, which I was very bummed about, but what can you do? So you'll hear the voices of my colleagues on the line, IG's chief executive, Alicia Miranda, and our managing director, Emily Collins-Ellis. Before we dive in, finally, I of course want to send a huge thank you and shout out to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. We love working with their team. They're so supportive of what we do and so bold and impactful in their own work. So a big shout out to them. All right, that's it for me for now. Let's let's get into it and onto the interview. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome, Richard, to What Donors Want. We're so thrilled to have you on the show with us today. Very glad to be here. 
So you may know this, Richard, if you've listened to any of our podcasts before, but we always start our episodes off with a speed round of get to know you questions. And these are silly things not related to philanthropy or your work, mainly because we want to highlight the fact that all donors and leaders in the space are just people. So are you ready for a few speed questions? Yeah, this is the reason I'm doing it. I'm hoping I can cut out after those speed questions. (laughs) They're pretty good, so it might it might just be enough for everybody. But I'll kick off the first one. So number one is, what is the best thing you've watched during lockdown? Oh, that is such a good question because I've been watching an enormous number of things. I loved Giri Haji, which is odd because it's quite a violent Japanese-English TV show with Kelly MacDonald, who's an old friend of mine. So I think that was fantastic. And then I watched an amazing documentary by Sarah Poli called The Stories We Tell that I recommend to everyone. Question number two is, if you could be the lead singer in any cover band, which band would you choose? Oh, I'm just the worst musician of all time. (laughs) Here we go. My top three bands of all time are The Beatles, The Killers and The Waterboys. But I couldn't do any of the jobs. (laughs) I'd I'd be in the Leonard Cohen cover band. Maybe you could do a mashup of all three cover bands. That would be quite innovative. (laughs) The first time for everything. So when you were really young, what did you want to be when you grew up? President of the United States. And then I found out I wasn't American, but I had an American accent. So I remember being very disappointed when I found out that bit of news. And then I wanted to be in a band, but I was fired for having no musical capacity. (laughs) Okay, we're turning up the heat now. Notting Hill or Love Actually? Oh, that's unfair. (laughs) (laughs) There's a right answer to that question, by the way. I think Love Actually, because you can't remember what's going to happen next in it, because there are so many stories, therefore it's less boring to rewatch. But I haven't seen either of them for a decade. I think I've watched Notting Hill enough for the both of us, so that's probably fine. Um, And clearly the most important question of this entire podcast, Colin Firth or Hugh Grant? Oh, God, they're both terrible people. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, look, for this, I think that Colin cares more about the world, probably. But on the other hand, Hugh does a strange amount for me, but I think he thinks that's just because I could blackmail him. So, you know, both, neither. Fantastic. Well, you've survived the hard part now. (laughs) You've survived. And those were really difficult questions given your career. So thank you for humoring us. So now we're on to part two, which is about your work and your leadership in the charity and philanthropy world. So as listeners probably know, you're an award-winning filmmaker responsible for classics we all love, as just referenced. And you're the co-founder of Comic Relief, which is one of the UK's largest and most prominent charities, also featured on a previous episode of the podcast, and among many other things. There's so much to dive into there. But first, can you zoom out a little bit and tell listeners about your background? How did you get into the world of philanthropy and social impact in the first place? Well, by mistake is obviously the answer. I mean, I think the core reason is probably because, maybe because I was you know, raised in Manila and instantly aware there of the huge inequality as I drove to school and saw 10,000 people living in corrugated iron little houses. But then, you know, I didn't do anything for anyone till I was about 32. And then I was part of the Live Aid generation And I got an opportunity to go to Ethiopia, not really knowing why, during the famine. And then the things I saw there were so profound to convince you of the sort of simultaneity of human suffering that I've never been able to get that out of my DNA since then. And 
I still think that if if everything I do could save one child's life or save one suicide, it, the whole thing would have been worth it. It's amazing. So comic relief and organization, we all know children here grow up with it. Increasingly children in other parts of the world do as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about the genesis of comic relief? What inspired you to establish the organization? Was there a gap in the philanthropic marketplace that you were specifically responding to? Just love to hear your story about how that began. Well, it's a long time ago now and things have changed, but there were a few factors. One, myself and all the people working in comedy felt guilty about how much work all the pop stars had done. Knowing what scoundrels they were, we didn't feel guilty about what scoundrels we were. I think that we then, we did a theater show like the Secret Policeman's Ball had been, but then we realized we're all TV people. And we thought there was a gap in terms of a very entertaining TV show, a sort of comedy version of an appeal show rather than just a sort of iterative or slightly more worthy one. And I think that when we started, the idea that fundraising did not have to be respectful, could be anarchic, could be stupid, could use celebrities who didn't understand the issues as well as ones who did, I think that was a real breakthrough. And it's now absolutely core to a huge amount of things that other people do. But I think that that was the key thing, trying to make it entertaining, trying to make it fun, trying to make it accessible, and trying to use the the biggest commercial platforms, the Hit Parade, J.K. Rowling, the BBC, things like that. Is there a moment that you think about that's really been kind of highlighted as one of the most rewarding moment for you um, in being part of Comic Relief over all these years? Um, I don't know. I mean, I when I think back on it, Now, I think we were part of keeping a generation alive to how tough other people's lives can be and the idea that you can do something about it. So, um, you know, I'm proud of every pound, but also proud of keeping that feeling of other people's hard lives and your relationship to them and your powerful relationship to them sort of in the ethos. I think every generation needs things like that. You can feel brilliant new ones coming up now. I would say that, you know, that in the long term, that's my uh, favorite thing. And then in the short term, I do think that Sasha Baron Cohen torturing the Beckhams was an important cultural moment, which was about 20 years ago and worth watching back on YouTube. I am definitely going to YouTube that one. And what about challenging? Is there something that really strikes you as having been the most challenging part through the evolution of that organization? You know, oddly enough, I think we're in it now. I think the two big things which are really exciting is the definite need to be brilliant on digital that we haven't been yet. And also the way, if you're a fundraising organization, to embrace the sense of activist movements, the fact that people are trying to change the way people think about race and about gender and about climate. And how does that relate also to the brilliance of a single donation? I think those now are the challenges we face. And I think I'd I'd love to be starting now with an agenda to crack those. I think that we're we're at the key moment in 2020. That's great. So as listeners might know, Comic Relief is just one of the many philanthropic projects you've done. And recently you founded Project Everyone, which is a nonprofit agency that seeks to put the power of communication behind the sustainable development goals, which are sometimes also known as the global goals. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What inspired you particularly to focus on the global goals framework? 
Yeah, I mean, at its most simplistic, I think that, you know, my career has gone from, let's say, comic relief, trying to get people's money to spend on brilliant projects, to make poverty history. I worked on that and the Live 8 thing, which is really focusing on politicians and their money. So, you know, debt relief and things like that. And then when the SDGs started to be launched, I became obsessed by the fact that people actually want to do stuff in their own lives, understand the solutions. Business has entered the frame in a much more powerful way. There's a need for systemic change. So I was really keen in my sort of simple communication mode to make sure they weren't just a 28-page document that no one would ever read. So, you know, my motto has always been to make things happen. You've got to make things. And so what we tried to make was, you know, a more attractive presentation of them, films about them, the short names that they've now got. And we're always trying to think of ways to refresh and get the brand out there. You know, they are the most brilliant plan for the resolution of all our problems that includes everyone from normal people to business to civic society to charities to governments. And the better that people know that they are the new Ten Commandments, then the more chance to make something, you know, work, you've got to make it famous. Yeah. And it's interesting because obviously storytelling, entertainment, that communications point you were just making, they've really been at the centre of your career in every aspect. Uh, So why is that, especially in your kind of social impact work? And how would you advise other social impact organisations to think about that, um, given your experience and expertise? Well, look, I think, you know, one is it's very easy when you're in this area to become too intelligent. I've got the advantage of having almost no memory whatsoever, so I can't remember facts, statistics, or arguments. So I need them. No, you. I can see you're laughing, but it really is true. So I do think that it's easy to overestimate how much the public understands. I mean, the 2005 campaign, the most complicated document, the Commission for Africa, and we summed it up in Make Poverty History, Debt, Trade, Aid. So I think that it's partly because I'm not an intellectual and find it hard to get the distinctions between complicated arguments that I think it's still useful to make people who feel a core passion able to understand things and able to get involved in them without reading, you know, long books. Mm. I think that's especially relevant for what you were saying before around kind of the shift towards movement building and, and, and kind of changing hearts and minds as well as supporting people directly, that that is actually a much more complex thing, right? Like, and it, it does take a, a lot of creativity and, and simplification, but, you know, passionate storytelling to really help that land for, for the majority of people. Exactly. You know, and the thing in my business of the movies is I make these movies that I care about every second of them. And then someone else makes a trailer that trashes them completely and puts on new music. And then some ghastly person makes a poster with, you know, people's heads stuck onto positions that their bodies were never in and with a slogan I didn't write. But I can see their useful parts of the progress towards market, you know. So I'm the poster guy. I think it can be so much more challenging to say something concisely than sometimes it can be to throw lots of words at it. 
So I think, you know, you talked a little bit about how things have changed and how things might be different if you were starting now. I mean, certainly the international development landscape and the foreign aid sector has changed a lot. It's come under a lot of criticism recently. That's everything from safeguarding through to power dynamics in traditional philanthropy and the kind of white savior complex behind development. What is your take on how things are changing and where they should be going? Well, look, uh, my take is... These are all good things. It's incredibly important. I remember the first time I went to a meeting at Gates and they described the people they gave money to as those we serve. And I think that was kind of important moment for me. So I think all of these are really, really important changes, important safeguarding is important, diversity is important. I suppose that I would also say It's really important to remember we're on the same side. You know, you see it all the time, particularly in politics, where people are much meaner to people in their own parties than they are. Most people are meaner to people in their own family than they would ever be to people that they work with. So I would just say also, just have that break where you try and be understanding, try and understand while all heading in the same direction, let's not disunite when we've got a climate crisis and a you know, equality crisis and a poverty crisis. Let's all try and work together. Absolutely. And this may be an impossible question, but if you could wave a magic wand and fix one thing about the international development sector, what would it be? Well, everybody promised to give 0.7% of their budget away. They would do that. I think that's important. And I wish every government would integrate the SDGs deep into all their decisions because they take into account all the key issues. So those would be my big two. There are two, but we'll allow it. They're good ones. <laughs> Great, you've sold it all. Done. <laughs> so it's clear from what you're saying and, and, and kind of looking at your career that you've really built a lot of very strong partnerships with lots of different types of supporters for the work that you do. So including, you know, philanthropic high net worth individuals, celebrities, businesses, other foundations. So obviously the listeners of this podcast are fundraisers themselves. I'm curious as to what your advice would be for them from that perspective. Uh, What are the partnership building practices that have really served you most well? Well, one thing I would say is, you know, never forget the public and how much public education does. It might be quite easy if you think we're going to get more money from business and the private sector we don't have to keep up our communication with the public. But, you know, even if Am- I supported Amnesty a lot when I was young, even if they could have got all the money that they needed from someone else, I'm glad they asked me for money and asked me to get involved. So I would never over-prioritize the, you know, businesses and philanthropy. I would always, if you can, keep in touch with the public. I think that business is so interesting now. And I think when you work with businesses, they're really open to the conversation about the way they actually conduct themselves. I think we're moving from a time of corporate social responsibility to responsible social corporations. So I think that, you know, when you're talking to companies, get them to do the best work, but also get them to look at the way that they behave generally and get them to spend their marketing dollars for you as well, because that public communication is crucial. And if I were dealing with, you know, big philanthropy organizations, I've worked a lot with Gates. I think one of the big things is I like them to speak out about what they're doing. I think that the governments of the world listen to businesses and major donors more or as much as they listen to civic society. 
So if you're working with people, if you can work on a project that you can also talk about, I'm really in favor of that. Rather than getting involved in the most abstruse things that they're doing, try if you're a communicating organization to say, well, let's do something really important and true, but let's try and tell the public that we're that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think just narrowing in on celebrity as a supporter base, we, we, we get often asked a lot at IG uh, from not our nonprofit clients about how they could or should leverage celebrities in their fundraising. And actually in a previous episode of the podcast, we interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda's philanthropy advisor. And one of the things she said is that, you know, people tend to think of celebrities as public assets almost that are kind of there for the taking, but that obviously they're humans behind the scenes and that there's a lot that goes into their philanthropy thinking in the same way as, as any, many other of many of them, many of them, many of them are humans. We were talking about Hugh Grant earlier. I'm not sure he. So obviously you have a lot of experience and success with uh, working with celebrities across all your projects. Do you have any advice for charities who are trying to incorporate celebrity endorsement or fundraising into their strategies? Well, look, um, it's really complicated and obviously has become complicated, you know, more complicated recently with mistakes that people have made with celebrities or celebrities might have made. I can't see how they're not, if you can use them well, an amazing resource just to increase the fame. We just did a you know, campaign about trying to get ethical pensions. And most of the people who viewed the films that we put out were encouraged to do it because, you know, we got some very famous people to, you know, ask them to watch it. I suppose that I would say that if you can get celebrities to do what they're best at, that's great. You know, if you can get a celebrity to who sings to release a song, that's also good. So sometimes think about using them where they're at their, you know, we tended to ask our comedians to be funny. So I would say that's important. I think there's a really interesting thing now about trying to link celebrities up to other people who are doing the work who aren't famous. I love that moment, the Me Too moment, when all the famous actresses turned up with campaigners who were working on the ground. I think it was to the Golden Globes. I think that's a new thing to get them involved with campaigners. You know, I think you mustn't expect too much of people to really, if I can't understand the issues, it's not surprising that a lot of comedians can't understand the issue. So don't push them into situations where they're not comfortable or where you can see that look in their eye that says, I don't understand what I'm saying, but I'm saying it. So I would say definitely don't drop it. Try and use them in the best things that they can do. And when you do find people who are really interested in the subject, dive in, give them experience, and then see how you can use that well. Yeah. I actually used to work with Emma Thompson, a previous charity I worked at that focused on ending human trafficking. And she, this quote that she gave that was saying, you know, that having having fame or having celebrity is like walking around with a giant bunch of balloons over your head all the time. And you can stand and talk there about human trafficking as much as you want, but people are obviously always distracted by the balloons. So you need to use the balloons as, as effectively. And I think that really speaks to what you just said about, you know, using their skills and their talents in a way that's most appropriate. Yeah. Look, I think that there's a lot of criticism of celebrities. I see them doing things to their own advantage. I don't buy that at all after 30 years. You know, I often say to people, do this and we will make £500,000. And I'm asking them as a human. And 99% of humans, if you said, you found yourself in a position by giving us a day's work where you could help a huge number of people, 99% of people would say yes, which is why 99% of celebrities do. 
So the rise of digital and social media has significantly affected the way organizations fundraise. And you mentioned that Comic Relief has been grappling with that as well. And this is happening at the mass market level and also the major gifts levels. So what advice would you have for impact organizations in that context? But one bit of advice I would say to people who are trying to improve their digital fundraising is really study the people who are doing it best. I've just noticed a certain stubbornness to say, well, this is our direction of travel. What can we do? It's such a difficult area. And I really would say, look at Charity Water, look at Global Citizen, look at Donors Choose, look at Giving Tuesday, really look into the people who've made the big breakthrough there. Don't be stubborn. Make sure that someone does that. I just think digital fundraising, connection, activism, they're so important. Mm -hmm. Don't do it on your own. (laughs) Fantastic. So we can't record a podcast today in 2020 without talking about COVID-19. Now more than ever, it's become an extremely challenging fundraising climate, and the pandemic is forcing a lot of organizations to restructure, some to shut down. How are you navigating what's happening around us, and do you have any recommendations for charities who are struggling in this climate? Gosh. I mean, we did this show called The Big Night Inn in the UK, which Children in Need and Comic Relief did, and we you know, directly addressed that that problem with charities. So I think this might be a moment for funders to address core costs rather than other things, just to make sure the charities survive. I think if you can find linkages between what you do and COVID and the damage that it's doing, you know, work hard on that. Don't stubbornly say that that's not really our area because in almost every area we fund, we found that there was a special and a new need. I mean, in the wider thing, you know, searching for a silver lining, there's a brilliant piece by Aaron Darcy Roy where she says COVID is a portal and we can, you know, walk through it lightly, dropping a lot of bad habits and bad prejudices and bad things that we did. And so I do see on the sort of UN level that it is a call for urgency and a call for partnership. And Paul Polman said this brilliant thing that, not to do any of the 17 goals costs more than it would be to do everything the SDGs asked for. And we've just seen that with COVID. To have had a proper pandemic protection system in place would have saved us the trillions which it's going to cost the world and which could have, if applied, have dealt so brilliantly with gender and climate and poverty and everything like that. So I would say COVID is a genuine and serious piece of evidence that very bad things can happen. So don't believe that mass migration, that climate change won't occur and use that to, you know, increase your passion for activity and partnership. It's a great point. You know, sometimes if we get asked, well, how should we be framing our fundraising now? You know, it's, it's very kind of similar, I think, thoughts that we've been sharing with our clients and friends in our network, which is that nothing is not being touched by COVID. So the idea that you're working on something that's somehow not affected is probably not true because everything has been affected. So I think um, thinking about it in that context, and it's really, really powerful. I mean, take homelessness. My friends in the homelessness area, you know, they tried to get everyone off the streets and they suddenly glimpsed, oh, wait a minute, there is a way to end homelessness. Let's take that determination and some of those initiatives and try and put them urgently into practice rather than say, let's go back to where we were before accepting it as a social phenomenon. Absolutely. I mean, it's shown us a lot about what we can do if we have to do it and broken a lot of the boundaries of things we were told could never happen. So Richard, just kind of zooming out a little bit beyond charities, you know, 
I think one of the amazing roles that you play is that you have so much credibility and are respected and connected in so many different pools. So funders and individuals, talent and celebrities, charities and nonprofits, the wider, larger international development sector. And now you recently launched this ethical pension investment campaign, Make My Money Matter, which you briefly referred to before. Could you tell our listeners just a little bit about this and about the role that you think businesses, funders, and others need to be playing to create a world where we do have this beyond corporate responsibility that you referred to before? Well, this was just a big, you know, utterly unexpected revelation to me. It's very much in tune with the times. Everyone's actually saying, what can I actually do in the clothes I wear, the food I buy, the way I travel? And it hadn't really hit me, the fact that, you know, the public have such an enormous amount of money that is invested, and so do companies. And the thing that businesses and progressive businesses most need is investment. So I just think, I mean, I really think this is just like a really simple instruction for everyone listening. If you're with a charity, make sure you have an ethical fund. If you're a business and you're trying to do the right thing, look where your pensions are. If you're an individual, do that too. It's a complicated area, but no more complicated than making, you know, spaghetti vongole. It's still, you'll make some mistakes and it's quite hard. But this idea that we can invest in things that we believe in and give a real boost to sustainable and ethical business. I think it's such an important thing. And we're looking for new things like this. You know, keep your eye open to your daily life. See, where can I make a change in the people I employ, the people I work with, where my money goes, all these kind of issues. But that's one which anyone listening to this podcast should just go tomorrow. Either ask their pension or ask their financial advisor or ask the person who handles finance of their business or their charity and do the right thing because you'll make just as much money, but while you're making money, you'll make the world better. So finally, and this is a tough one because we've covered a lot with you today, but what would you say is the one key thing that you really want our listeners to take away from this conversation? Well, look, that is tough. I think that I would say, well, let's see, try and get hits. You know, that would be one good thing. If you if you sniff that something that you're doing has really looked like it's working, throw yourself into that area. Charities have a lot of jobs. And sometimes if they've like done a bit of merch and it really took off, they say, oh, that's brilliant. We've got an extra million. Whereas it could be that merch is your future. Do you know what I mean? So I think one is follow the hits. That's, I think, what I would say. I mean, my general thing would be be of good cheer and work together. I do think that times are hard, easy to get gloomy, but there's never been more digital opportunity. There's never been a more activist and exciting younger generation. There's never been a time when businesses are more feeling the heat and wanting to go forward in radical ways. So I would say this is a moment for focusing with extra intensity rather than saying, oh, it's another difficult and especially difficult year. You know, try and be optimistic because the most optimistic and energetic moods will create the best results. I couldn't agree with that more. Inspiring note to end on, yeah. Oh, can I say one one last thing also? I mean, this is a more sort of soppy thing, but do always remember, you know, because Comic Relief, you know, we've raised 1.3 billion or something now, and it's very easy to be obsessed by the big numbers, but motivationally, it always helps me 
to think about the small ones too. You know, I would just say that if when I'd walked into the BBC 30 years ago, if someone had said to me, you will definitely save this one life by the work you're going to do, and it's as precious as your child, I would have done it. I would have done the 30 years. I'd still feel that was a brilliant motivation. So always try and remember when you're dealing with the big numbers, when you're saying, oh, it's disappointing we raised four million this year instead of five. I mean, what a what a what an amazing thing to have done to raise the four. So I'd I'd always keep that in mind that the individual achievement by you as an individual, that's a thing to be proud of. It is so brilliant. I think it is so easy, especially for those of us who sit in offices or I guess more recently in our homes, but really far away from the work that's actually happening, it can be very easy to forget the extraordinary individual impact that we can have with our work. And so I can't think of a a better way to wrap this up. Richard, thank you so much for your time. We have been incredibly grateful. I don't know how Hugh Grant's going to feel about this podcast, but I think everyone else is going to love it. Um, I've said many worse things about him. He'll think he's got off light. We'll find out on Twitter later. (laughs) Okay. I mean, thank you so much. And, and, you know, I, I think that the more I work in this sector, the more impressed I am by the brilliance and the commitment and the passion of people. So, you know, I'm honored to be part of it in my own small way. All right. That's all we've got for today. Of course, a huge thank you to Richard for his generous time and advice and for being so open to dive into these topics with us, whether it's from Hugh Grant to the incredible impact and expertise that he has across the social impact sector. It's uh, It was a real pleasure to listen to. So I'm sure there's lots that, that listeners and fundraisers everywhere can really walk away with and think about. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes coming soon. Uh, we have a really, really great lineup of, of guests for, again, through the autumn, but even to next year. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you who they are. I'll keep them a surprise, but they're very good. And in the meantime, you know where to find us. So Twitter at IG underscore advisors. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. Or you can email us, any of us really on the team, directly for a virtual tea or coffee or beverage of your choice. You can find our emails on our website and we'd love to hear from you. Finally, of course, before we sign off, another huge thank you to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this all possible. And thank you to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in and and reaching out and sharing your thoughts and questions. I love hearing from you. So thanks for those of you who do reach out and, and please continue to. And we'll see you soon. Bye.